0: And welcome to Invisible Not Broken. I have been waiting so long for this guest. I'm really excited from like the time he messaged me to like waiting for this conversation. I've been so psyched. Um, you might remember that Kiris and I did an episode on sex, disability, and chronic illness. Now this is the expert. We just had like personal experiences with sex and disability. No, we actually get to talk to someone who knows what they are really talking about So, I am here with Melvin, who is a social worker, and he wrote Sex and Love When You Are Sick, which, uh, thank you so much for coming on, Melvin. We had the greatest chat, and I completely kidnapped you for like 45 minutes, just racking your brain with everything.
1: Well, thank you for having me on.
0: (laughs) I am so happy about this. I've been really psyched because they're like, this is one of the big things that I know no one bothered to talk to me about when I became really disabled. And it was just sort of a, there's a weird taboo around sex and I do not understand it at all. And it's definitely a part of many of our lives. And some of us really still want it to be a part of our lives, even when our bodies aren't quite so sure if we can, should, do everything we used to do. So let's start off with how did you get interested in this? Um, I'm not interested in sex because I think most of us have a very clear image of our heads of when we got interested in that. But when did you get <laughs> interested
1: in that kind of Well, you know, we get all these sexual messages as a, as a kid growing up. And sometimes when we get these sexual messages, um, we don't know what to do with them all the time. So, but no, it's interesting. I I guess I can kind of tell you how I got my interest in working in chronic illness and chronic pain. And that kind of goes into the sex a little bit. I um, became a psychotherapist back in 2008. And what happened was I started working as actually a geriatric psychotherapist for a community mental health agency. And I started seeing a lot of um, geriatric uh, people coming in that had a lot of chronic illnesses and chronic pain. But after a while... I started to get people that were all kinds of ages everywhere from 18 to the geriatric years to 80, you know, and um, all these people were coming in with different illnesses, everything from fibromyalgia to multiple sclerosis, to diabetes, to cardiovascular issues, to POTS, all those different diseases. And I thought, well, you know, this is affecting everyone. And so what happened was I ended up working there for five years Did some great work. I started a chronic pain management program, which was a great group that I had full of people that had a lot of chronic pain issues. And the group was a success. Um, I shortly left there and I came up to D.C. to work in September of 2017. And it's kind of interesting. I started out as a um, like an administrator at an outpatient program doing clinical management. And I really didn't like it and I missed doing clinical work. So I went into private practice and I started working in chronic illness and chronic pain again. And I went to this workshop on how to grow your private practice and the woman who ran it, she said, "Um, so you work with chronic illness? And I said, yeah. She goes, have you ever thought about becoming a sex therapist? And I said, well... No, but <laughs> I think <laughs>
0: that's what it does I mean who doesn't in their first grade classroom go, Yes, teacher, I want to I be an astronaut about it? no sex therapist. That sounds like a plan. <laughs> right. So I was like, you know what? I think I'm gonna go ahead and
1: do this. I said, No, I'm interested in this. She goes, because there's a lot of people with chronic illness that have a lot of, you know, um problems issues or just feelings about sex and i was like well this is something that needs to be talked about and needs to be discussed i've been treating chronic illness for 12 years now and um i was like you know let me do my research on this and there's not a lot of books out there on um you know chronic illness disabilities and sex there was a great group written there was a great book written in 2007, which is The Ultimate Guide to Sex and Disability, um, by Dr. Kaufman, Dr. Silverberg, and Fran O'Dead, which is an amazing book. But I feel like there needs to be some new things out there. So that's kind of like how I got interested. And now I have several clients that I treat that have chronic illness. And once I've told them I'm a sex therapist, they start talking about how they've had sexual dysfunction, sexuality issues due to you know their illness so that's kind of how I got my start in it
0: that's an amazing start I mean like it's um it's always interesting because most of the people I know who have any um interest in a career with chronic illness usually have it themselves but you're from a totally different side of it which is why I was so mm-hmm. interested like how that all began for you with like yeah. this is not something that's a part of your your personal life chronic illness yeah, it's it
1: is. Um, it is somewhat of a part of my life because back in 2012 I was diagnosed with chronic TMJ disorder. And Ow. I had horrible <laughs>
0: no, I, I, I have it. It's awful. It's
1: awful. I have it. And I went through five years of treatment, and that really did help me, but I was having migraine headaches. I um, was having tingling sensations all through my body. Um and because of having that and getting the treatment, and me already being a psychotherapist, that really fueled my fire to be a support for others that have chronic diseases, chronic pain, and that's kind of how I also got my start and having that interest. So,
0: well, I retract my statement. You do have a background in this. Am I, I'm sorry, I must have misread the. No, I never. T- yeah. yeah,
1: I, I guess I never really shared my story. <laughs>
0: Well, we talked about a lot of things. We covered a whole bunch.
1: We, we did cover a lot of things. So now, yeah, this is my story, and um, it's interesting. Also, Monica, I got diagnosed with um, Lyme's disease in 2012, and I became. Oh, so you
0: definitely know what's going on. Yes, I completely exactly. retract my
1: statement. I'm <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. I have taken a series of medications, and then they they tested it over and over, and it kept coming back negative. Um, so but yeah, when I first was diagnosed with it, I was very, very ill with that. And I had the TMJ on top of it. So it was it was a bad time. That's so.
0: brutal. And you my I was so amazed like how well you were able to understand your patients when we were talking. Now I I I see that you definitely had a background in this and understand the limitations of chronic illness when you're looking at sex, romance, dating, everything else is like one of the big things that we've talked about on this podcast. And we've heard from a lot of people is that, um, just the start of all this, the dating is such a hot topic when you're chronically ill. And like, when do you tell someone and all the stories of like being on a date and someone going, okay, out, just walk out of the restaurant and gone. Yeah. 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 Easily you may. And,
1: and, you know, because there's a type of discrimination that comes with it and, you know um and i think when someone gets diagnosed with a chronic illness what do they feel they feel broken it's earth-shattering they don't know who to go to they don't know how to deal with it so then here they do that here they have this part of themselves that wants to have a healthy relationship they want to have sex you know there's this myth that people with disabilities and chronic illness are not sexual and that's bullshit because <laughs>
0: Yes, um.
1: they are. But it's ways to work with it. And if you're working with a couple, it's learning how to help them acknowledge loss, how to cope and, and, and really get to the point to see if they can build a relationship with the illness. Like, what can they do? So it's kind of looking at what's possible instead of what was once achievable. Right. So it's dealing with that part of it.
0: I love that because it's really um, important to like redefine what sex is also.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's it's learning how to adjust, you know, because what happens is when someone gets diagnosed with a chronic illness, they feel less attractive. There's less confidence. They're concerned about how their body works. How are they going to adapt to an illness? Right. Am I going to be able to please my partner the way that I was able to, you know, what's going to, what's going to happen with desire and arousal? Because in most relationships, you know, one partner usually has higher desire and arousal than the other, but what if there's someone with a chronic illness where they become chronically ill and they're not the partner that has that high desire anymore? (laughs) Right?
0: (laughs) Right. You know, what you're talking about is so interesting because it's not just the chronic illness community. I mean, this is definitely an episode, but I think all of us can share very easily with everyone because as we age, things become different. Our arousals right. are different. What, what arouses us are different and what we can physically do. Um, for a lot of us who are have um, any of our biologies will react differently as we get older. <laughs>
1: Right. Absolutely. So what happens with aging in the body and sex, right? And so what happens is, yes, we see older people that get diagnosed with chronic illnesses, but they're still very sexual. And how can they rebuild a sex life? Or I should say reclaim. That's the whole goal of my book is to teach couples how they can reclaim a sex life, right? And that, because when you think about it, you know, sex is a powerful source for comfort, pleasure, and intimacy when so much has been changed from an illness.
0: I want you to name your book that if you do a part two, reclaim your sex life, I think is definitely the title. I, I would definitely like, I couldn't walk past that if I saw that. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yes. I good. Yeah. I'll that's, definitely- that's your one person um, consumer <laughs> <laughs> test group is I would actually like that book title would really catch my attention.
1: Yeah. Well, Hey, I may do it. Maybe I'll say, you know, sex and love when you're sick, reclaim your sex life, you know, yes.
0: That would be good. I like that because I think like a lot of people with, or maybe even a lot of people, um, I personally, when I would hear like, you know, sex and love when you're sick, I'm like, Oh God, it's going to be another, um, stage burning kumbaya dance in a circle book. <laughs> um, cheers. If that's your thing. I mean, yeah, well not, you, know, uh, what?
1: you I, know what?
0: You lots know
1: what? <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I have to tell you, the book is in the proposal right now. It's not even been written. I'm working on the proposal.
0: <laughs> Are you supposed to be publishing next month?
1: No, I'm not. I'm okay. not publishing next month. I I'm trying to get the whole goal is to have the proposal finished so I can um So I can go ahead and get a book deal, and then once I can get a book deal, then hey, I can hopefully can have a year to write it. So if I need to change up the title, I can do that, right?
0: I'm publishing next month, so cheers! I'm so happy for you. You don't have to do a mad rush.
1: Yes, my whole goal, yeah, my whole goal is to. be able to, to promote it by talking more about it. And I want to be able to talk about it as I'm writing it. I think that's going to be encouraging for me. You know, I think it's really going to help me. And that's really what I want to do. Um, And the book is kind of like designed like an arc. You know, it talks about the problem and then it's going to kind of go into, well, what's the solution or what's the thing that we can do to reclaim? What can we do to have a sex life that works? How couples can become closer to each other after there's been a diagnosis of a chronic illness? Because what we find is there's this isolation that, you know, that comes with it. And how can couples reconnect?
0: That is um, so true. Sure, I think a lot of the time there's this mythology that once you get married, you've found the other, the one who will accept and understand you for this day forward, um, which I will try not to cackle. um, But (laughs) there's just this idea of like, you're never going to be lonely again. And that is not true. There is definitely loneliness in a marriage, in a partnership, in... That's kind of the thing that we all have to get our heads around is like Mm -hmm. the void, the loneliness. And that does not get cured by another person. Like
1: <laughs> exactly. And that's my goal as a psychotherapist, a couples therapist. I have a lot of couples that come in and the whole goal is to really get them to connect emotionally and to connect and to get them to connect sexually. And you know, sometimes what I find it can go either way. You can have amazing sex and that can go ahead and fix the emotional detachment of the relationship or It could go the other way where you need to work on this emotional stability with each other, have that connection, dig up what's going on with chronic illness being one of those core factors, being able to talk about it in a safe holding space, and then, you know, hopefully have great sex. So it could go either way. I've had couples where they have amazing sex and their emotions are fine. (laughs) And then I've had couples where, You know, they don't want to accept things. There's this anger that's going on, you know, so we have to work on the communication and there is sexual communication. You know, when you adjust to having a chronic illness and you are sexual and you haven't had sex with your partner in quite some time, you have to talk about what are the things that will give you pleasure, right? It's this communication that has to happen.
0: Yeah. And that's not always an easy discussion to have. No, no.
1: It's very, it's very, very difficult. And that's why I think I wanted to write this book because I wanted to write it for the couple that has been together. One ends up coming down with an illness or maybe they, they, you know, they got married after one of the partners already had an illness and they're learning what they can do in terms of being intimate, you know, because Sex is so broad, and we can receive pleasure in so many different ways. <laughs> you know, which is great about it.
0: You know, it's um, it's really interesting because, like, I think that um, the thing that I thought was easiest about my marriage was my husband knew me before as friends, so he saw all of the disability, all the illness. But I think there's one aspect that I didn't count on, which is that when one partner has is healthy, the healthy one, yes. and the other one's the yes. sick one we ended up in a very reversed, weird 1950s marriage, (laughs) which is not something that either of us were signing up for, but it was very much like he was suddenly the the only one making money. And, you know, I as um, second wave feminism had been working since I was 13. And then he does all the housework too. So it's this weird thing where he's like, the (laughs) breadwinner and does all the housework. And that's like, what energy or emotional capacity is left at the end of all that for exactly. intimacy? And it's like this weird thing where I'm like, oh yeah, I remember watching a show where housewives were talking about like, it's just another chore because like they're exhausted. And I'm like, you know what? I think, think in this weird roundabout way, poor guy <laughs> is exhausted and needs more help around the house that I don't get to provide. <laughs>
1: Right. So there's this like lack of, you know, my thing is this communication, it's one of the most easiest things to do, and it's one of the most difficult things to do. Because if you are affected with an illness, What does that do? It isolates you. There's a series of depression and anxiety that comes with it. There's this uncertainty, you know, you make up, you, you know, I have a lot of my clients um, have fibromyalgia. They come in one day, they feel great. They come in and see me like the next, you know, the next week and they feel like a Mack truck hit them. Right. So you never know that uncertainty. So when it comes to sex and intimacy, it's kind of like that too. There's this anxiety that comes over, Um, you know, because again, there can be the changes in your body. There's the side effects for medication, um, and the fatigue that just comes with it too, not having the energy levels. So one of the things that i work on with couples is having them help each other to communicate and, and things that can help with their energy levels. One of the things I talk about is pacing for pain, right? Where again, you may wake up one day, you feel like Superman or Superwoman and you clean the entire house. And then the next day, video cameras in my home.
0: (laughs) That is absolutely the most depressing thing that is so true about this world is like, yeah, I have energy, so I'm going to go and scrub.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So, one of the things that we talk about is pacing for pain, right? So, you take each day task at a time, and even though you want to get something else done, that's where you have to kind of go, but wait a minute, I need to like rest because if I don't, you know. And so, what happens is when there is relaxation, and there's rest that can be a great prerequisite for desire and arousal right not feeling as tired so that's one of the things that we talk about in therapy and to be honest it's not always about if you're like if i'm working with a heterosexual couple it's not always about piv sex right yeah. there's there's other things
0: Contrary to most of the videos that a lot of people watched in their young days, there's a whole range of things.
1: (laughs) Right, a whole range of things um, that we can work on. So I I there's a lot of tips that I really share with my couples when they come in. First of all, giving them again that space to talk about it, and and you know, and I think it's just nice because they feel heard. You know, they don't, the person that's ill, they don't always feel heard. They're afraid, you know, I have this invisible illness. I'm going to go out and talk to people. You know, I don't look sick. They may not believe me, you know, so just having that safe space and then having their partner come in. We talk about how they can communicate their needs to their partner and have them communicate their needs, right? I think that's very um, important. Problem solving together, making it a team approach, Um, you know
0: anything anyway, you can do as a team like if you, anyone who's been like in any relationship for a long period of time teamwork is everything like yeah you've got yeah. your back in all ways that you have their back too like that does yeah. so do you have any like um hints or tips just right off the bat like a way that someone can start this conversation
1: Well, you know, a lot of times when one of the things that I recommend is that when people come in, sometimes I don't like to say, well, if it's a returning client, a lot of times I don't say, okay, how are you since our last session? Because when I do that, it opens up the floodgates to so many things.
0: (laughs) That's at least an hour right there for me.
1: (laughs) Right. So what I try to do is if it's with a couple and they're a returning client, one of the things that I do is I start off with appreciations. Like what have you appreciated about each other this week? What is something that you have found helpful? And we start off that way, and then we ease into it. And I find that that helps. Now, if it's a client or a couple that you know I've never seen before, they're coming in for the first time. Of course, I share with them my background, why I got involved in this work, um, you know, my specialties, what I do, what the therapy process is about. And that it is a place, one thing that I have found that really helps is just letting them know that I don't have an agenda when they come in, right? Like, here's this place for you just to talk and just share what's happening with you, you know? And I think once there's a therapeutic rapport that's been built, it makes the process easier. And it's funny, when I first started this type of work, I said to myself, how am I really helping people? And then after years of that, I said, I'm giving them a supportive place just to talk.
0: That's huge. Yeah. But I do feel like um, someone who's chronically ill or um, the spouse of someone who's chronically ill or a partner, um, can, how can you start bridging these conversations? Because I think like, the longer things are going off. The yeah. that, that conversation is to start. So yeah. So
1: what I what I recommend is that first they process in my office, right? But I think when you come to therapy, one of the things that you have to do is you have to do the work outside of the session. So we carve out conversation time. I have them do that. If it's a sex therapy case, they plan a sex date night, right? So it's putting the time in your schedule because I think couples that may have children. They have all types of different stressors going on, right? Life just keeps happening and happening, but there's also a partnership that's got to be taking place. So what we do is I I recommend to them or assign them this carve-out time where they can actually sit down and have a conversation. If the conversation gets to a point where anger starts to happen or there's disrespect or an altercation. I don't think it's safe to keep going. I think that needs to stop. But it's important not to push it under the rug and let it sit there. And I find that's what happens a lot. So that's where I come in and they'll bring it up in the session. But to answer that question, it really is having them sit down and have an easy conversation with each other. I think that can really help.
0: So what would you suggest for someone who's like, um, chronically ill and dating? How do you suggest someone go about like, when to talk about it, when to bring it up? Well, I feel like, the big, like that's sort of the big dark for every like single person I know's head when they're dating and chronically ill.
1: Yeah. Well, what you have to do is one thing that I realize is that everyone's on their own journey, right? So first of all, they have to be ready to date. A lot of times When you're first diagnosed, there's this crisis phase. You may not even think about sex. You may not want to date at all. They just have to be ready for that. And so what they do is we start to process that. What would it look like if you were in a relationship? You know, how will that make you feel? Um, you know, <laughs> technology has just taken over. There's so many apps now and social media dating sites. I can't even keep up with all of them.
0: Uh, we just interviewed, um, oh my goodness, I'm blanking on his name, but he runs Lemonade, which is a oh. dating app and sweetheart. Um, <laughs> 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 he's really nice guy. Um. But yeah, it's like none of that was existing when I was out dating. That was just like... Right. So I think with technology, (laughs) yeah, I think that's
1: kind of helped, you know, because on these dating apps, you can list what you're into, what you're not into, what you're looking for. Um, A lot of, you know, my patients that come in, they disclose it on the first date, you know, they don't want to wait until they get, you know, really involved with someone and catch a lot of feelings, the relationship, defense, and all of a sudden... Here comes this, you know, news about a, having a, chronic <laughs> this <is> a
0: tsunami. <laughs> this is a tsunami of news.
1: <laughs> a tsunami, right? And that's what it is. So sometimes people like to just get it out in the open, and I have found with a lot of my patients, you know, that does help them by doing that. So it's, it, like I said, it's a journey, and it's, it's just different for everyone, right? If they're even ready to do that, um, and then of course with a couple. If they've gotten disconnected, it's learning how to get them connected again. And I think the way to really do that, and and you would know about this, it's really accepting the illness. So many people have a hard time with that, especially in the beginning, right?
0: Deeply true. Um, I think my husband actually does better accepting my illness than I do. I'm really disassociated from it. It's like, no, 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 that's over there. (laughs) Is there a chapter you're really looking forward to writing in the book? Is there something you've been like, I just want to get to this one part so bad?
1: Yes. And you know what? It's funny because I'm going to be writing the chat. I have to send in two sample chapters for my book proposal. (laughs) I'm really really excited to write about the sexual dysfunctions that it causes, you know, with desire and arousal, erectile dysfunction, everything from that and like, you know, you know, vaginal dryness (laughs) that can happen. But I'm also looking forward to writing about what couples can do to be sexual. You know, there's something that we use in sex therapy called Sensate Focus. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like mindfulness 2.0, you
0: know, (laughs) I'm listening. <laughs> so,
1: so it's this type of um, uh, technique in sex therapy that was developed by Masters and Johnson years and years ago, who were like the big founders of sex therapy. And it basically, it's a series of touching, touching, being connected to your body, exploring things. And you can do that through a series of touch. Um, it, what we do recommend is that you don't have sex right away when you're doing it because you're you're building up your arousal. Um, But I've had some couples come in and they're like, hey, Dr. Phillips, sorry, the second night, we just did it. We can't go back anymore. <laughs> Isn't that the goal anyway? <laughs> like, yeah, that's the goal anyway, right? So I'm like, well, good for you. But yeah, just touching, um, you know, and I'm just going to be honest with you,
0: the tongue's amazing. I mean, uh, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> no shame here. Like, all oh, that's very true. Um, and yeah. when you're talking about like, you hit on some really important things, and I'm so happy that you do discuss these things where you're talking about erectile dysfunction, and that can be such a hard thing. No pun intended. I really didn't mean to use that word, but it's the best one I could come up with with my <laughs> opioid cl- clouded brain right now. Um, but it's mm-hmm. a really difficult thing for for a lot of men to start discussing, to to not feel a level of shame with, to feel like that's oh, to masculinity, and then you talked about vaginal dryness, which is something like whether a woman is aroused or not seems to be very um, not something covered a lot of the time. It's right. it's like incidental. It's and that's really unfortunate. I feel like there's so much more we need to in media show a different story of sex and give a different like definition to what can be possible and when you're talking about like reconnecting with the body that was like a solar plexus punch because for a lot of us who deal with chronic pain all the time being in your body is not something you want to be in like this is not where you want to be associating like it's like get as far away from that as possible so to like think about the body being a source of pleasure can sometimes be a, a huge disconnect in the brain when it's like, but the body is pain.
1: The body is pain, absolutely. And you bring up a good point because the whole goal when you are doing sex therapy, a lot of times, it is to get reconnected with your body. And I think, you know, when you do have chronic illness, chronic pain, you have no desire to do that. So we talk about that in therapy. And that's what I love about therapy. It's like you come in, we lay it out on the table and it's like a puzzle and we try to connect the pieces as much as we can. Um, You know, it's interesting. I think sometimes when people go to the doctors and, you know, um, bringing up medical care and everything, which (laughs) that's one thing that I do when I treat chronic illness, I'm helping my
0: patients navigate the
1: medical system, right? How do we, how do you talk to doctors
0: that is an incredible, uh, point that goes across all of us, like from every part of the globe, how, and that was something I asked you about first when we started discussing if you were going to be on the show or not, was like, yeah. how inclusive are you? Because if you have a different sex life, a different, um, gender identity, a different, um, sexuality from the like 1950s, like <laughs>
1: absolutely exactly.
0: bad yeah. Women, yeah. like. If you don't trust your doctor, you could be putting your health in tremendous danger. Like the ability to discuss poly, to discuss pansexuality, to discuss transgender, Mm -hmm. bisexuality, like, and the different types of marriages that exist, the different types of relationships. Right, like,
1: you know, and that's what I do. I work with a lot of non-monogamous couples. You know, I work with a lot of polyamorous people. I work with a lot of kinky people. And one of the things is how do we navigate that? How do we try to trust the doctors and talk about it? And that's going to be a big part of my book. The first chapter is actually going to be about the science and mystery behind chronic illness, Uh, particularly um, nociceptive pain, which is pain caused by disease. So I'm going to touch on that a little bit. And really what happens because... You know, many people, they leave the doctor with several questions that aren't answered. You know, um, we're not sure why you have this, but we have this medication you can take. Okay, well, thank you, but that my mental health, my emotions, my body and my, you know, sexuality. So a lot of that needs to be talked about that. And that is the big purpose of this book is to just give people a voice Um, because, you know, you may feel invisible, but Hey, you've got a voice and the voice needs to be heard. And I tell my patients that, so that's why they come in and we talk about that. Um, the different processes that goes on and, you know, and I try to educate as much as possible on really what happens in the brain when it comes to illness and when it comes to pain, because you're right. You know, I mean, I think it can be just such a big mystery to a lot of people.
0: It is. I wanted to ask you, and if this is like out of the sphere of what you you're thinking with uh, chronic illness i um there's a lot of us who also have like mental um health issues like ptsd Mm -hmm. so like ptsd from all sorts of things from like what we expected to have ptsd from to uh medical procedures that have gone wrong right and like that can be like i can't let anyone touch the small of my back that like sends me into sheer panic attacks after I had a um a nerve suppression go wrong where it went all the way through my spinal column and like it just I mm. so do you work with people with that in mind like the the PTSD of like um physical procedures of bad things happening is that along absolutely. With the chronic illness too? absolutely
1: I work with a lot of people with trauma I have to say that Chronic illness is a trauma. You uh, know, yes. <laughs> it's a trauma. So it's dealing with that um, and being in a safe place because most people that have um, chronic illness, there is this link to PTSD. There's a lot of link to trauma. There's actually, it was really interesting. There's a study that I looked at one time. And what's interesting is that um, there is a big link with chronic illness. And chronic pain linked to sexual trauma. Yes. Um, you know what was interesting is that there was a um, a link in this study looking at fibromyalgia and sexual trauma, and the results were actually really stunning. Um, people who experienced sexual touch by an adult or forced sex with an adult represented a high percentage of people in fi- with fibromyalgia. So yeah. there is a big ptsd component here that we address in therapy and you know when it comes to trauma and once i have a good therapeutic relationship with my client then we really can get into that work but i don't go there unless my of course my patient wants to because that's respect and you know it can be very very difficult to talk about
0: that's very true. The only thing I will say about that study, because I that study's been used against me a few times because it was like, well, you're it's in your head. And here's like the the proof because you did experience that trauma. So that's why but the interesting thing about it is that fibromyalgia affects um biologically female um patients who uh, um more than um, there's a lot more than the I'm trying to speak around, like what I keep getting called out for, which is gendering. So please everyone, just forgive me as I screw this up horribly uh, because I don't have the brain cells for it. But biologically male people tend to not get fibromyalgia as much or as extreme as the biological female population and the biological female population. The amount of us that are actually saying that we experience that trauma is pretty flipping high. So you have to then, a lot of people aren't saying it. So I'm like, you're, you're, it's almost like saying, like, everyone who eats carrots dies, so carrots are what causes death. <laughs> like, it's like, right. ah, that's a large right. population with a large issue that's systemic. That mm-hmm. I don't know if that's like a component to what causes fibromyalgia. I think there needs to be a little bit more research into how those statistics came about out for me to go on board with that but that's just something I wanted to throw out there because I'm like right now I'm in the middle of the opioid crisis and yeah things that get bandied around with that without an actual explanation of the statistics it's like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Know, there's a lot more at play here than we're <laughs> oh
1: yeah absolutely and and no you bring up an excellent point because that's what I see as well and most of my most of my patients in, in psychotherapy um, with fibromyalgia are women you know? yeah most of the times when I've done chronic pain management groups, they're mostly all women in that group. And, you know, it's a, it's debilitating how that shows up. But that's why I still think it's such a mystery. And I think that's why there needs to be, like you said, more research, more studies out there, and also just to be written about and spoken about, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, like one of the things I feel like is so missing in our society is the um representation of people with different health health issues that are actually discussed with someone who has something like that. Like that the narrative switch from everyone in a wheelchair is desperate to walk. Everyone in a wheelchair is either desperate to walk or desperate to commit suicide. And that seems to be like a narrative through Hollywood. And I'm like, I really want a different one. Like, (laughs) I really need something else here, people. Like, I just want a regular person on a regular show seen doing regular things in their wheelchair or with the canes or like, I just... I think that we're missing representation in a huge way, and representation, I think everyone can agree, is everything. If nothing else, like the last two years of uh, Wonder Woman and Black Panther being the two top grossing movies of all time for their their genres, I think right. that's that representation is everything. and the chronic and invisible illness community, there's a lot of us. Like, we would pay to see, like, a superhero who is using a wheelchair or, like, we need this. Like, a good... It would be nice, wouldn't it? (laughs) And I'm not saying that there's not people in wheelchairs who are desperate to get out or who are suicidal. It's absolutely something that exists. I just need more narratives, like, more representation that should not be the only thing we see over and over again. If we're going to have someone in a wheelchair... Obviously they're super depressed. They are like, no, I need another side to this. Like I feel like representation could do so much. And that's why I was so excited for your book. Is like this is absolutely needed. It um, is.
1: It is. Um, that's why I decided to really write it because you know, even in the sex um therapy world, um, you know, I see a lot of like, okay, there's sexual dysfunction. There's um, a lot of sex therapy out there on treating infidelity and affairs, which I think is needed and working with different populations, but you don't see so much with chronic pain and illness and disabilities. And I think that is definitely needed because there is this, you know, idea that um, people with disabilities are not sexual and they can't be or they shouldn't be because they're disabled. Um, and, you know, to be disabled, you have to look disabled. And there is there needs to be more work on that. And that's really my goal as a psychotherapist, but also as a researcher, is to do more work and to do it for all types of people, you know, people that are in different relationships, people that identify non-binary, people that transgender people, like all kinds of people, because there's not a lot of work out there that's on this topic, and that's what kind of drove me to do it. So,
0: I was so when you were telling me that you are working with people who have chronic illness who are non-binary or transitioning as yeah. uh, the people who called me out for my language are some of the most amazing humans I've talked to. Like I like literally been like tweeting back and forth with people like, okay, I, this is not in my sphere, but I can totally see what, what's going on and like what you're dealing with. And like, I feel like there's so much to unpack when you're talking about, there are parts of your body, like possibly like endometriosis, where if you're mm-hmm. um, female transitioning male, like that's, that's a huge psychological co- component that you need some, well, I would definitely, if I, I'm just going for what my brain would be processing, which would be like, I am walking away from this part of my body and this part of my body is screaming and needs tremendous amounts of work. Like that just seems like a lot to unpack. And I don't know how many, how many healthcare professionals are going, okay, so this is what you have. I understand you're transitioning. Here's some ways to process, help you through the emotional side of treatment.
1: Right, right. And that's, and that's the thing. And that's where I come in, right? Because medical doctors, they don't do that. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do here in the DMV area, you know, DC, Maryland. (laughs) I have never
0: heard that before, but (laughs) I'm loving it.
1: (laughs) In the DMV, you know, um, we have quite a few sex therapists um, here. You yeah, know. really, you guys have issues
0: over there with all the policies. and
1: uh, <laughs> oh, We have a lot yeah. going on over here. <laughs> all the walls. There's,
0: a, there's all kinds
1: of things going on over here. So one of the things that I'm doing, we have a great group of sex therapists in this, um, in this region, but I haven't found that many of them really do specialize in chronic illness. So one of the things that I'm doing is I'm actually doing a lot of marketing work. I'm going to different doctors, um, chronic pain doctors, neurology. I'm going to rheumatology and really just getting the word out there about my services and what I do to help people process this. Because you're right, there's so much to get out. Mm -hmm. And what research shows um, is that when you are able to have like a decrease in your depression or anxiety or something like that, you know, I think that you can actually really manage your pain better at times. And, and it could go both ways, you know, say that you've got a lot of pain um, that has happened or you're in a relapse of something. Of course, that's going to cause more depression and anxiety. But when you have someone to talk to about that, to process your feelings, to get those emotions out and gaining some coping skills, um, that, that is just so important and it's so needed. Um, to be able to do that for people. And that's why I do the work that I do. Um, because I think people that have an illness, again, there's that isolation component that comes with it. And there's this fear of being discriminated against and being judged. And that's, what's great about therapy, because you can talk to someone who's not going to, well, they shouldn't, (laughs) (laughs) In an ideal world, in an ideal world that you, you don't have that, right. And you're able to share (laughs) your true feelings about things and help navigating. And especially when you're wanting to be sexual, you know, I've had my illness for years and now I am ready to date. I want to have sex. I do have a body. I do like pleasuring myself and I want someone to help pleasure me. So we work with that. So it's so important.
0: I and mean, one of the things is that you and I both um, live in metro areas. So there's, like, more acceptance, generally speaking, in, like, the San Francisco Bay Area or in a city over on the East Coast. Like, these are, like, more um, condensed areas. But someone in the middle of the country, so to yeah. speak, or someone who's in uh, maybe another country that um, being gay is actually a crime that can be legally persecuted or... Oh, yeah. Uh, Like, there's a lot of, um, it's going to be harder and harder for people to have those discussions. Um, I don't know if you've heard of some of our other interviews, like uh, Eva with Wellacopia. She's working very hard to get more telemedicine out there. Mm -hmm. So it'd be so great if, like, you know, more sex therapists were on, like, telemedicine where you could actually, like, what we're doing right now on Zoom. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you therapy with someone who wouldn't, like, judge you, even Mm -hmm. if you live in a country where this is, like, that's yes. such a huge taboo that's an illegal issue.
1: Right. That's an excellent point. I think there needs to be more of that. And I think what we're seeing in the mental health world, we are seeing more of that. We're seeing more telehealth that's happening, which I think is fantastic, especially for people in other countries and rural areas that don't have you know, the a way of getting to a place and, and finding a therapist or a sex therapist, right? So we're seeing more of that. And what's great, you know, talking about the lovely managed care organizations that you just have to love. Um,
0: <laughs> what? What? <laughs> I am so, there's been like a soapbox over here. I have not stepped on it once. I feel like I have, like, this is as much self-control as you will ever see me have around a political discussion. Really? <laughs> Like my heart rate has been at like the weirdest zeros up to like two hundred for the last two days. I'm like, I'm gonna try to keep myself calm. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, if you have to step
1: on the soapbox, it's okay. You know, go for it. No, but we're seeing (laughs) we're seeing more like um, healthcare. You know, health insurances are covering um, some telehealth services, which. It's, it's so needed, you know, um, because people that have illness, disabilities, they can't leave sometimes. They can't, you know, a lot of times my clients will have to cancel now, you know. You know, I wish I could come, Dr. Phillips, but, you know, I can't get out of bed today. I've got this migraine headache, and I'm not even able to see light, you know. I'm just in so much agony. So, yeah, sometimes I'll talk on the phone and do some phone work with my clients, which they really appreciate, and they know that they can always... They can always call me, but yeah, I think for me, you know, when we're looking at this from the psychotherapy and it is critical to look at, you know, the physical effects of their condition when it comes to their illness and you're looking at sex. So specific interference with genital or any other sexual responses, um, as with, you know, there's, there can be vascular impairment, neurological damage. Those are the things that we look at in psychotherapy as well. Um, non-specific effects uh such as pain general malaise you know we look at the fatigue levels lack of sexual desire which is what we kind of touched on um immobility like with you know arthritis that's another thing and making different postural changes um normally expected during sexual activity that's difficult or impossible so sometimes i work with couples
0: I'm just like, oh, I hear you there. Eller uh, Stanlos, you move the wrong way, you dislocate. So let your imagination do a trick there. Yes, yeah,
1: so we talk about that. And then that's one of the big pieces. In couple sex therapy. And then, of course, there's the psychological effects. There's on the individual, the embarrassment, feeling sexually unattractive, or generally experiencing a loss of self-esteem. That's a big one.
0: Ooh, well, I'm just thinking from like the, you take your medication, and uh, my medications look like, you know, the Hunger Games, like may the odds ever be in your favor. Like, you will experience weight gain, possible death, uh, suicidal thoughts. <laughs> like, the list for these meds are hilarious. And, they are.
1: They are. And, you know, and what's funny is sometimes I'll, and, you know, and again, I'm not trying to bash the medical community here, but I will have patients coming in and they will say, I don't know what the side effects of my medication is. My doctor did not talk to me about it, or they may have touched on it. And me not being a medical doctor, I can't really go into a lot of that. But as psychotherapists, we do have to be educated on side effects of like psychotropic medication, like anti and things like that. So we do um, talk about that. And then of course talking just a little bit about couples again, um, we look at the relationship. you know for an example, you know if you're working with a couple, a man who is sexually disabled um, after a stroke or something becomes dependent on his partner in a number of ways resulting in the relationship. Being more child parent like, so one of the things that we cover in couples therapy with chronic illness is the caregiver syndrome. Right? We talk about that. Are you my partner? Or are you my caregiver?
0: That's a classic kind of thing. That's a fun one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. And it comes open. So what we do is we define what is a partner and what is your partner like? What do you want your partner to do? You know, so it is this big um, sexual adjustment that does happen. Um, And it's difficult because, you know, the partners want to continue an active sexual relationship. So with a life-threatening illness or just a chronic illness, we have to work with, well, how do we adjust to that and what, what, what can we do? So there's a lot of different things that we, we tend to go over in the therapeutic setting.
0: So we're getting close to an hour and I was thinking we're, we're going to be airing this like right before Valentine's day or on Valentine's day. Um, can you give like a, just a general idea of like how people could try to maybe like up the ante on their romance or their sex life, even if it's like a solo sex life. Like,
1: is there anything that yeah. you you know, you know what? I will tell you one thing that's so important. Plan sex. Plan it. Everyone thinks sex needs to be spontaneous, but sometimes you have to plan it. If you're feeling well and you're feeling great, plan it. Have a sexy date night. Do something different with each other. Go somewhere you've never been. I would not recommend a movie or something like that because you need to talk, right? And, yes. and, and have a sexy night. Go home. Try something different. You know, there's all different types of sexual things that people can do. It does not have to be penetrative sex. You know, it's what works for the couple. Um, if you're single um, and you're on the apps, <laughs> ask someone maybe just if if you're on the apps, it's a whole different world. <laughs> it's a whole different world, but. Just, I think there's this fear of being sexual and you don't have to be. Pleasure yourself. I mean, masturbation is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It's stress relieving. It feels good. It's wonderful. So do that for yourself. Um, And, you know, and I think that's really what you have to do. It's about a bond. And it's important that we love ourselves. We have self-care and we just... We do those things. So that would be my advice. Try something different and have hot sex.
0: You know, I, I think that's a great one to close on. Thank you so much for being here. Like, yeah, this has been a wonderful talk. I really hope you come back to the podcast as a guest. Um,
1: I would love to. so
0: much to cover about romance sex. If you've enjoyed this episode and you have questions, Send them over. I will compile a list so we can like have like a whole list of your questions for the next round and we'll see if we can answer them. I uh, hope okay. you come back for the blog too. So if you have any things you want to send, um, go over to our show notes. Always go to our show notes. I will have links. So I'll be linking the website and when there's a book, we'll definitely be promoting that. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. The nicest thing you can still do for us is to go to Apple Podcasts. Give us lots of stars. Say nice things about us. Um, Sharing is amazing. Thank you so much. We're now having listeners through Africa and China and Russia. So really excited my voice is better traveled than I am. That's awesome. So until next week, be kind, be gentle, be a badass.